During my lifetime, I have dedicated myself to the struggle of the African people. I have fought against white domination, and I have fought against black domination. I have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an ideal which I hope to live for and to achieve. But if needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. This is a portion of Nelson Mandela's three-hour-long speech from April 20th, 1964. At the time of this speech, apartheid was controlling legal segregation in South Africa. I want to compare apartheid to Jim Crow laws in America, just to set up some association for people who are completely new to this event in history. The legal system of apartheid was started in 1948. It made laws that forced the different racial groups of South Africa to live separately, which led to the horrible treatment and development of land where the natives and blacks lived during this era. The legal systems of apartheid were started in 1948. It made laws that forced different racial groups of South Africa to live separately, which led to the horrible treatment and development of land where the natives and blacks lived during this era. Apartheid was used to stop all interracial marriage, as well as social integration between the two divided racial groups. During apartheid, even to have a friendship with someone of a different race would have government officials and neighbors begin to get suspicious of you. As I know I wanted, I'm going to go way back and provide you with the historical context of how white people came to be in South Africa. The gist of it is that in 1788, Dutch occupied South Africa and began to enforce the laws of their country. This same trend continues during the British occupation in 1795, roughly seven years later. Now that we understand how the white population arrived in South Africa and that they'd only been there for around 150 years before apartheid started, I think it is also crucial for you to understand that the white population made up the minority of that population, being about 20%, in 1948 when legal apartheid was starting. Now to start my timeline and get into the meat of any big events in South Africa from 1948 to around the turn of the century. Please excuse me if I don't go into too much detail on one event or person. Please know that I avoid these topics because my peers will go into more depth on their own individual episodes. 1910, the year that all of the formerly separate Boer republics united with the British colony to become the Union of South Africa. There were nearly 300 reserves for natives throughout the country. The ANC was formed in Bloemfontein in 1912, just two years later. It was started as a movement for the black elite, that is, those blacks who were educated in South Africa. A series of land acts set aside more than 80% of the country's land for the white minority. As we said, this was about 20% of the population at that time, being less now that it's 1912-1920 era, thus hinting at the beginning of this new era of apartheid. In 1948, Dr. D. F. Milan, the prime architect of apartheid, led the National Party in the first campaign that centered on openly racist appeals to white unity. The party promised that if elected, it would make these permanent reserves under the joint fundamental principle of separation with trusteeship. The National Party swept into office, office this year, winning 80 seats, mainly from Afrikaner voters, compared to the United Party's 64 seats. Apartheid called for the separate development of different racial groups in South Africa. On paper, it appeared to call for the equal development and freedom of cultural expression, but the way it was implemented made this impossible. We can compare this to the separate but equal acts that were implemented during the Jim Crow era that I was referencing before. Uh, after the National Party gained power in South Africa in 1948, 
its all-white government immediately began enforcing existing policies of racial segregation. One of the first acts passed was the Prohibition of Mixed Marriages Act. In 1949, this outlawed marriage between Europeans and non-Europeans. In 1949 also, just after apartheid was introduced, the ANC started on a much more militant path, with the Youth League playing a much more important role as well. The ANC introduced their program of action, supporting strike action, protests, and other forms of nonviolent resistance. The next year, 1950, the Malan government passed the Population Registration Act, which categorized every South African by race, and subsequently required people to carry with them at all times a card stating their racial identity. This act was later modified in 1952 by issuing reference books instead of identification passes. Anyone caught without their reference book was fined or imprisoned. In 1952, the ANC started their defiance campaign. This defiance called on people to purposefully break apartheid laws and offer themselves for arrest. It was hoped that the increase in prisoners would cause the system to collapse and get international support for the ANC. Black people who got on white buses, used white toilets, entered into white areas, and refused to use passes. Despite 8,000 people ending up in jail, the ANC caused no threat to apartheid regime. The ANC continued along this same path of resistance during the 1950s. In 1959, some of the members broke away and formed the PAC. These members wanted to follow a more violent and militant route, and felt that their success could not be reached through the peaceful methods that ANC was providing. Thousands of Africans were uprooted and moved into racially segregated neighborhoods and cities or to reserve, which in the 1970s would be recalled homelands. The reservation of the Separate Amenities Act of 1953 had black workers who during the day worked in the now residentially white-only cities and were still required to use different public transportation, post offices, schools, restaurants, and even separate doors, benches, and counters. Black South Africans resisted apartheid from the very beginning. In the early 1950s, the African National Congress, or the ANC that we have been referencing before that began on the nonviolent protests against apartheid, launched the Defiance Campaign. The purpose of this campaign was for the black South Africans to break apartheid laws by entering white areas using white facilities and refusing to carry passes. We can compare these to the sit-ins used during the civil rights era in America. The ideology supported by the National Party government was introduced roughly in 1948 when apartheid was also introduced. Promotion of the Bantu self-government in 1959. This act said that different racial groups had to live in different areas and only a small percentage of South Africa was left for the black people. When the Pan-African Congress, the PAC that I referenced before, broke away from the ANC in 1958 and initiated its own campaign against apartheid, they began very violent campaigns of resistance. April of 1960, the black population marched on Cape Town, and a state of emergency was declared, and the Marines of South Africa were sent to help. Nelson Mandela helped organize a paramilitary branch of the ANC in 1960 as well. He was then promptly arrested in 1961 for treason. In 1960, the black protests that I was referencing before against apartheid reached a peak when police killed 69 people in a Sharpsville massacre. In the late 1960s, the South African Students' Organization, known as SASO, was formed. Today is, it is known as the Black Consciousness Movement in South Africa. 
Moving into the next decade, 1974 was when South Africa was expelled from the UN because of apartheid. In 1976, we get into their more violent campaigns. More than 600 students were killed in the Soweto and Sharpsville massacres. Many white women at this time were also learning how to use firearms in case of civil unrest that was occurring. In June 16th of 1976, 10,000 black school children protest and riot because of new legislation that forced them to learn the language Afrikaans. As I mentioned before, the United Nations expelled South Africa due to their role in apartheid, and the General Assembly of the UN had denounced apartheid in 1973. In 1976, the UN Security Council voted to impose a mandatory embargo on the sale of arms to South Africa. On June 10th, 1980, his followers smuggled a letter from Mandela in prison and made it public. Unite! Mobilize! Fight on! Between the anvil of united mass action and the hammer of the armed struggle, we shall crush apartheid. Three years later, in 1983, the government allows farmers to rearm to protect themselves from dissidents. Two years later, in 1985, the United Kingdom and United States also imposed economic sanctions on the country. In 1990, Nelson Mandela was freed from prison. And apartheid formally ended in 1994 with the first election, which allowed the participation of all adult voters. With the election, Nelson Mandela became the first black president of South Africa. This thus ended the era of apartheid, lasting from about 1948 to 1994. Thank you for listening. The next podcast will be by my peer, Brandon, and he will discuss more in depth the sanctions that I was discussing about the UN, as well as important figureheads. This is Sam, signing off. Hello and welcome to the Historical Context Podcast. This is your host for this episode, Brandon Rogers, and I am covering all of the important figures and organizations from this era of apartheid. It all started with one man, Daniel F. Milan, who started legalized apartheid in 1948 at the start of his rule. Unlike in America, people fought against this idea from the very start. Near the start of Daniel F. Milan's leadership, there were defiance campaigns where black South Africans would break these apartheid rules set in place. These rules that were broken consisted of entering white-only areas using white-only facilities and not carrying around these passes. The passes were domestic passports used to put restrictions on the people that carried them. These passes put restrictions on where you could live and by default placed you under your white co-workers at work, uh, and overall you were just put lower on the food chain. This was all to establish uh, Milan's idea of absolute apartheid. Daniel F. Milan spent his entire sentence in office trying to establish this idea of absolute apartheid, when in this sense it is the idea of the complete subjugation of any colored South Africans as well as the insurance that white South Africans would rule, in essence, forever. Eventually, the UN did take notice and put in a vote to restrict trade towards South Africa, as long as this was going on. However, there were two main figures that were against this idea, those being America's Ronald Reagan and Britain's Margaret Thatcher. The reason these two were opposed to limiting trade restrictions with South Africa is due to the fact that they openly opposed communist Russia. Eventually, the vetoes were overturned, 
and these trade sanctions were imposed onto South Africa. As well as all the stuff mentioned before, Daniel F. Malone also tried to disadvantage black South African students by lowering their education standards in higher populations of colored South Africans. To combat these problems, uh, a resistance movement was made in 1983 called the United Democratic Front. The two main leaders of this group were Archbishop Desmond Tutu and Reverend Alan Bosak. One of the ways the United Democratic Front opposed these apartheid rules was with these organized marches on the South African Parliament, which could contain as many as 80,000 people in one place at one time. Next up is my co-host, Brayden. Hello and welcome to the Historical Context. I am your episode host, Brayden Baker. In this episode, we'll be diving into the white population in South Africa. More specifically, I will be discussing what it means to be a white South African and different, different privileges that they enjoyed in South Africa during apartheid. And then further in the episode, we'll be talking about what they did to achieve justice for everyone else under the apartheid system. So what did it mean to be a white South African in terms of apartheid rule? This is actually a tricky question to answer purely because of the nature of how a person's race was determined by officials. This determination was also extremely important because it would determine what privileges you got and in a sense determined your quality of life from there on out. Let me paint a picture. So the current South African government is run by Afrikaner National Party. South Africa is run by white people who are mostly European. There are notions of white supremacy in the air. The fear of possibly losing their jobs, language, and culture rested on the shoulders of many people of the minority white South Africans. Don't let the word minority confuse you here. In this case, minority is referring to the number of white South Africans to the numbers of everyone else in South Africa. Keep in mind, white race has control in the situation, and it's not the population majority, and I can assure you that. Anyway, let's hop into what classifies a white person under apartheid rule. So, to be a white South African, you had to be of Afrikaner or European descent. An Afrikaner is a South African whose roots can be traced back to Europe when South Africa was first being colonized for mining purposes. Afrikaans is their language that they have developed over time. More modernly European, or yet past some obscure tests if your race wasn't that obvious. Some of these tests would include the hue of your nails being either lighter or darker than a standard, which was not necessarily predetermined. Um, there would be a pencil test where if the pencil could slide through your hair without getting stuck or just falls right through it, you are a white person. If it stays in but falls out if the person were to jump, then they are classified as a colored person. If it stays in the person's hair, no matter what, they are classified as a black person. So you can see how people could get split up into different groups that others even in their own family. That's right, the Population Registration Act of 1950, the very reason why people were classified in such a way, could even divide families due to its crude method of determining a person's race. However, as previously mentioned, the white population was the minority group because they were outnumbered by the other racial categories four to one, and 78% of that population were black South Africans. 
So a quick recap. The white Afrikaner run government instituted the Population Registration Act of 1950. And this was the basis upon which the population of South Africa was divided into shifty racial groups. And to be considered white, you have to be of Afrikaner or European descent, pass the pencil test or other petty tests. And at that point, you would still be the minority population in South Africa by numbers by a factor of four to one. So now that we know what defines the white population, what did that mean? What happened to the white population during apartheid? And the short answer is basically nothing. Nothing really happened to them because the government was white and was wanting to preserve the white population in South Africa under what was considered separate development. The long answer is what didn't change for them. Much like segregation in the United States, white South Africans got to enter through the main entrance for a building and had better paying jobs and overall led a more positive life that wasn't hindered daily. On top of that, white South Africans had more access to higher education than any other group. When it comes to experiencing apartheid directly, and often the white South Africans just didn't, they weren't victims to petty apartheid, the parts of apartheid that became parts of daily life for those that were directly affected by apartheid. Such examples of petty apartheid would be having to abide by past laws. Past laws were implemented soon after the Population Registration Act to regulate the interaction between races. White people typically didn't have these because the restricted areas the passes were meant to allow entry to were white spaces. Speaking of white spaces, more than 88% of the land in South Africa was set aside for the white population through various land acts while the rest was to be inhabited by the rest of the South African population. To make matters worse, land could only be owned by white people. This meant that black people had to give up their land and were forcibly removed to the black reserves. The impact of these land acts was found in that 3.5 million people were forcibly removed from their homes between the years 1961 and 1994. This displacement is still felt today and there, con there continues to be a lasting economic impact but the new South African government plans to address these issues left by apartheid. Although the white population of South Africa benefited from apartheid, this isn't to say that there weren't a number of them who stood by those disparaged by it. In fact, there were some white people that opposed apartheid and would protest alongside other racial groups. Even some white politicians pushed for a relaxation of the intricate apartheid laws also known as petty apartheid, or even full racial equality, which meant doing away with apartheid completely. There are even some predominantly white protest groups and resistance organizations such as the Black Slash and the Armed or African Resistance Movement. The organization that I'm going to talk about in depth here is about the Armed or African Resistance Movement, also known as ARM. To start off with, the ARM organization was part of a larger organization known as the National Committee of Liberation, or the NCL for short. As previously mentioned, the membership of the NCL was mostly white and the NCL started out as a nonviolent movement that was more focused on the political sphere. What caused the turn to armed operations was the realization by some NCL members that the nonviolent approach was simply not working and that and many were disgruntled by the fact that they were forced into more peaceful means for a resolution 
while the government enforcing apartheid could be as violent and as brutal as they wanted. I'll touch more on, the, on that violence in just a bit, but for now, let's focus on what the next moves were for the now very action-oriented NCL. The NCL first needed more members to join before anything could take place. But once members were high enough and partnerships were made with other groups, they launched their plans of sabotage. The arms' first moves were to take explosives like dynamite from the common mines. Once they had accumulated enough explosives to really do some damage, while also sabotaging mine operations in the process, Willing armed members received training from ex-British military officers about how to handle and use these stolen explosives. Even though things seem very ominous here in the case of the arms stocked with explosives, they never ever set out to use them to harm people. The arm always targeted infrastructure away from the general population, like electrical pylons. There was only one failed attempt to bring down public infrastructure that resulted in the loss of human life and that was when the arm planned to disable a train with explosives, and authorities were notified beforehand by the arm itself, and there were explosives planted, on the train, planted in the train station, but the people were not evacuated in time. Soon, the apartheid government began to crack down on organizations like the NCL and their branch arm. Leaders and operation coordinators were made to flee into exile out of the country, but some still remained in their command and worked to end apartheid even from outside South Africa. During this time, the NCL helped smuggle out important figures from its partnered organizations in exchange for their partners to return the favor. Attempts were made to continue sabotage operations. However, the plans and explosives were discovered and members began selling each other out to receive a lesser punishment for their treasonous acts. The NCL and ARM were victims of this crackdown and were hastily dismantled. Here's where the, that violence from earlier comes in. Get ready for this one. The government would torture captured members to find out more information as well as to sell out any other members of the organization. Anyone they caught were put on trial that were likely anything but fair for treason and thrown in jail or worse. The, those fleeing the country to evade trial were often caught either before escaping into exile or were kidnapped in other countries to be brought back into stand trial. Despite things not looking too good for these organizations, apartheid would come to a screeching halt at the election of President Frederick William de Klerk. President Frederick William de Klerk began to repeal apartheid legislation, including petty apartheid laws, in 1991. May marking the beginning of the end for official apartheid in South Africa. He also wrote a new constitution for South Africa in collaboration with Nelson Mandela, even while Mandela was still in prison. This anti-apartheid spirit did not fizzle out then and is still very present now in the new government established by the South African residents as it seeks out to reverse the damage done by apartheid. The road is very long, but a lot has already been done to improve conditions. So what did we learn? We learned what classified the white population under apartheid, which was European descent, the pencil test, and any other random test they decided to throw at you. 
What privileges this population enjoy despite being a numerical minority, which would be land ownership, education, jobs and economic status, and lack of impact from apartheid in general? Even those benefiting from this system stood up against it and believed in doing what was right to ensure the end of apartheid. In the next episode, you'll be learning about different racial groups defined by apartheid rules, colored people. This group had a unique experience in not only their determination of their race, but also their treatment by the apartheid system. Thank you all for listening, and I really hope you learned something from this episode of the historical context. I hope you enjoyed and that you continue listening to find out more about the impact apartheid had on the South African people. Hello, and welcome to Historical Context. I'm Steve Myrena, and I'll be your host for this episode. I hope you have enjoyed learning about apartheid so far. As Braden said in the previous episode, I shall be discussing what life was like for colored South Africans. But before that, I would like to give a brief history of the colored people. When Dutch settlers arrived in South Africa, they brought along Khoisan slaves from Madagascar, and now the majority of the colored people can be traced back to them. During apartheid, life was quite difficult as you could imagine. You weren't considered white or black enough. Families could be separated from race classification, and even today, colored people still rank in between white and black South Africans. Colored is often used indiscriminately for all people of mixed racial origin. It's another way of saying mixed, but in a more negative connotation. When I refer to the word, I do not mean it in a negative connotation. This relates to topic two. Moving on to main topics, our first topic is laws passed. Laws passed. Many laws were passed during apartheid to prevent colored South Africans from interacting with other races. Many of them had to do with making it specifically illegal for people who were considered white and for people who were considered different races to get married. All of these laws were passed around the 1950s and even today, interracial couples can still be looked down upon by certain people who have different views. Further series of laws disenfranchised many colored individuals and confiscated their land. Another law would be the Reservation of Separate Amenities Act, which legalized racial segregation of public services such as hospitals, schools, buses, etc. This meant that whites would get the highest quality of these services, followed by colors and blacks. This will be important information for later. The final piece of information that I would like to share concerning laws would be that the CRC, or the Colored Representation Council, was established in 1968, which compelled colored South Africans over the age of 21 to vote for their own representatives. This limited their political options, making it practically impossible to show any true expression of their beliefs. Moving on to our second topic, race classification, we will learn more about how certain people were classified and how this caused problems. Most colored South Africans speak Afrikaans as the first language. It is also the language of Afrikaners or white South Africans. I bring this up because the language is a way to express their culture and it's sad that apartheid dug away at those roots. The Population Registration Act of 1950 classified all South Africans by race. This meant that South Africans were divided into four categories, including white, black, colored, and Asian and Indians. It was not always that easy to decide what racial group a person was a part of, and this caused problems as different family members or friends could be treated differently in the same location. People could be considered one race one day and another the other day. Our next topic has to do with family struggles during apartheid and how they affected colored South Africans. As a recap of what has been said so far, Laws passed in race classification were two big problems during apartheid. Laws were passed that prevented you from marrying certain people. Laws forced you to vote for a specific person. People being put into categories based on the color of their skin. It was sad to see this happen because of people wanting more control over their economy. 
As I had mentioned before, people often look down on interracial couples, but the reason behind it has to do with one race not being good enough for the other. I feel like this causes much grief for couples because they just want to be together, but most of the time can't. Another family struggle would include resistance to apartheid because colored organized resistant movements fought against discrimination, but for the people who wanted change or the activists, police would come to their homes in the dead of night and many would disappear without a trace. This would cause much stress on their families as they wouldn't know where they went or whether they were alive or not. For our last topic, we are going to see the biggest issue during apartheid, which is unfair treatment. Many mixed people were crammed away far into the Cape Flats to make room for white South Africans in Cape Town, which is the capital of South Africa. They also live in poverty where many young men are pushed into violence and street gangs to survive. Color South Africans were forced to carry a passbooks or dompas, which showed if you had permission to be in an area and for how long. Urban areas were strictly for people who were white. If the police stopped you in that area, you had to have special permission to be there, and if you didn't, police would arrest you. Many people disliked this because it was sort of a way to track the movements of colored South Africans. In 1959, separate universities were created for black, colored, and Indian people. This was the information I referenced in the first topic that would be important because it shows that all racial groups receive different levels of education. Even today, colored South Africans as a group still rank between blacks and whites. I hope you learned something new with this episode and that you feel more informed on the struggles of colored South Africans during or after apartheid. I will now ha hand the mic to our next host, Josiah, who will tell you more about the struggles of black South Africans during apartheid. This is Steve, signing off. Hello, my name is Josiah Glimical, and this is the Historical Context, Episode 5. This episode is about the experience of the black population in South Africa, how it happened, what it looked like, and what changed. My co-host Sam has a way more in-depth look at the start of apartheid and the end. He hosts episode one, so check it out for a more in-depth look. What is apartheid? In the Af Afrikaans language, apartheid means apartness. Apartheid was the economical and geographical division of black, white, and colored people that occurred in South Africa from the 40s to the late 90s. Apartheid was the economical and geographical division of black, white, and colored people that occurred in the South Africa from the 40s to the late 90s. It all started when the National Party gained power in South Africa in 1948. Its all-white government immediately began enforcing existing policies of racial segregation. Policies like the Marriage Act, the Bantu Education Act, Population Registra Registration Act, and the Group Areas Act, all touched on in my other co-hosts' episodes. Between 1949 and 1953, South African lawmakers passed a series of increasingly oppressive laws, beginning with the prohibitions on black and white marriages in 1949, and accumulating with laws dividing the population by race, reserving the best public facilities for whites, and creating a separate and inferior education system for blacks. The Group Areas Act was fashioned as the cornerstone of apartheid policy and aimed to eliminate mixed neighborhoods in favor of racially segregated ones, which would allow South Africans to develop separately. While the initial part of land disposition began with annexation and division of territory, over the time, proclamations were made and laws were enacted by both the Afrikaners and the British to dislodge African people from their land while consolidating areas of white settlement. The areas designated for black people were inferior in almost every way to the white areas. If you were black, you needed to pass to leave your area and enter the white areas. There were white-only beaches, benches, and churches. 
Separate development was supposed to allow Africans to develop themselves under their own self-government, but the economic structure of South Africa made that impossible. Despite strong and consistent opposition to apartheid within and outside of South Africa, its laws remained in effect for the better part of 50 years. The education was aimed at training the children for the manual labor and menial jobs that the government deemed suitable for their race, and it was explicitly intended to inculcate the idea that black people were to accept being subservients to white South Africans. The idea was backed up by many black women being maids in white houses. To recap, apartheid was a system of dividing black, white, and colored people in unjust ways. They were separate but not equal in quality of education, the Bantu Education Act, and living conditions, the Group Areas Act, and etc. In 1991, the government of President F.W. D. Clerk began to repeal most of the legislation that provided the basis for apartheid. Even today, there are atrocities happening in South Africa, sex trafficking being a big problem. It is affecting thousands. To help, to help you can donate to End Slavery Now for volunteer to them. They have a specific location in Cape Town that helps in major South African cities. This has been the historical context. Thank you for listening.